We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning to one and all this morning. Welcome in. Our scripture reading this morning is found in your Bibles in the book of Proverbs. And we are in chapter 28 of the wisdom literature book here, and I prayed for this reading and do still that it will have a great impact in your lives as we read it in our continuing series of reading through the Bible together since 2008. We've been working on this project and we keep moving. Proverbs and the 28th chapter. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. A poor man who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain which leaves no food. Those who forsake the law Praise the wicked, but such as keep the law, contend with them. Isn't that so true? Contending with the wicked, those who keep the law. Verse 5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. Whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding searches him out. When the righteous rejoice, there is great glory, but when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. But he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. A man burdened with bloodshed will flee into a pit. Let no one help him. Whoever walks blamelessly will be saved, 
but he who is perverse in his ways will suddenly fall. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. Whoever robs his father or his mother and says, it is no transgression, the same is companion to a destroyer. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. When the wicked arise, men hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. Well, that is a blessed reading, and I trust helpful to you in reminding of the principles of righteousness. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis again this morning, Genesis and chapter 9. We're going to find that a 5,000-year-old text, actually the text isn't quite that old, but what it teaches came from that far back, is still as relevant today as the day that it was spoken. Funny thing that God gives humanity these instructions, and they're ever so relevant to us today. Genesis 9. Now, we titled this uh, The Dispensation of Human Government, which for me is not a very creative title, but it does describe what's happening here, that God is instituting a new era in the history of the world. And this era is uh, moving the world out of the age of conscience and the terrible judgment of the flood into really what we could almost say our modern um, situation is, uh, primarily with how we eat our diet and how our governments have been invested with the authority to take even the life of a person who is a malefactor and, and other, I think, lesser punishments as well. We'll look at that in, in uh, due course in our message here. A new dispensation. A dispensation, by the way, is a kind of a stewardship, if you will. It's instituted by new revelation of God. It gives new responsibilities to mankind. It shows uh, how God is going to adjust his way of relating to people. Um, and it begins, this one does, with Noah leaving the ark and the revelation that God gives in this chapter. This is called the stewardship or dispensation of human government because man is given the ultimate sanction, capital punishment. This implies then a governmental structure where man and his corporate arrangements can mete out such punishment on individuals and, I assume, lesser severe sanctions as well. Uh, We won't get to that immediately, though. We're going to start in chapter 9, verse 1, where the Scripture says, "...so God blessed Noah and his sons." and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We saw this before. And then it says, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, 
on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. We'll pause there for just a moment. We have here a restatement of the dominion mandate, as it was called, that, that command of God, which also builds into it a blessing from God, which is the assigned stewardship that man has. God did not just create man and woman and uh, the whole human race to just be here, like somehow exist, but he gave us work to do. And uh, we understand that, I think most of us do intuitively, hopefully we do. If you don't, why, come and see me. Uh, I try to share with you the theology of work, which started in the garden before sin. Uh, it, it, it became more difficult after sin entered the world, that's for sure. It became uh, all the more necessary, but it was there in place in the very beginning, and it's still incumbent upon us. And I would teach in you, uh, for you the theology of work, that work is a blessing. It is something that gives you uh, satisfaction. It helps your health, your mental health. It helps you to be productive. It helps others in the society as you produce goods or services that uh, help uh, ease life or um, reduce suffering, for example. I think of somebody in the medical community. Uh, that's wonderful if you can reduce suffering and help people to live a better quality of life. Somebody who produces a, a piece of equipment that helps uh, to reduce laboriousness of, of work. Uh, those are all very good and useful things, part of the dominion mandate. We are stewards over this earth. This was first stated in Genesis 1.28. Man has been given this stewardship where we're to care for the earth and its animals. So some of that work is to tend our land, to keep them well-functioning, not overgrown with thorns. Uh, in other words, to kind of beat back the wilderness a little bit because it does what it does, and it needs to be managed. It needs to be managed. Um, interesting. Uh, mankind is to fill the earth with his children. The blessing that is given here uh, and, and uh, command, really, I still think, is, is uh, still our portion. Uh, reproduction is uh, our, our job in the human race, and with the health care and the prosperity that we have, it's much easier to multiply than it was in past millennia. I mean, think of how many babies died before one year old or two. All of cemeteries filled with baby so-and-so with dates of days or weeks or months. Can you imagine the sadness of so many parents who lost multiple children, perhaps, due to infant diseases and things that were outside of their control? It's much easier for us today and, and better uh, worldwide, and certainly more in some places than others. Obviously, we recognize that. However, people want to use abortion as birth control. They want to have fewer children. They want to spend on themselves rather than spending on the next generation. People talk about overpopulation and population reduction. And 
Well, this is exactly what you would expect sinners to talk about because sinners have this odd proclivity to do exactly the opposite of what God wants them to do. So if God says do X, they want to do not X, whatever that is. Even if it's stupid and harmful, self-harmful, and has bad results, they still want to do it. It's an odd thing about sin, perversity uh, of sin that, that puts into the minds of people. But sinners always want to do that and Similarly, with most of the instructions and institutions here in Genesis 9 and throughout Scripture. In verses 2 through 4, God uh, gives a little instruction here about the animals. And it starts in verse 2 with this idea of the fear of mankind will be in the animals. And that is, uh, that's too bad. Uh, we like animals, and uh, well, some of us do anyway. Um, but that fear has driven animals to become aggressive sometimes toward humans. And uh, we, we then rightly, in turn, fear them. You've probably heard the story recently of an animal, a, a pair, I think it was a pair of dogs who mauled two children to death. And uh, the mother as well uh, was injured, not killed, but just a terrible situation. Dogs that were in the home. Um, the human-animal relationship doesn't seem to have been strained before the flood, if we just kind of read between the lines a little bit here. But it would be so now, moving forward from Genesis 9-2. There will be changed again, though, in great measure in the millennial kingdom. We read in Isaiah chapter 11, for example, the harmony comes back into the uh, animal creation and between animals and people. Until this point, God had made allowance for people to eat of the plant kingdom. In verse 3, uh, the phrase says, uh, well, it says in the beginning, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So evidently, to my reading, it indicates that the assigned uh, diet was a, a, I'll say an herbal diet, a green diet, um, Plants were what was fair game before this point. And Genesis 1.29 made this statement. It said, uh, God speaking to the human race, every herb and every tree, to you it shall be for food. It doesn't say anything about animals, about meat. However, now he expands the diet to include animals as food for humanity. Now, certainly, I think it's possible that man may have jumped the gun and eaten meat before he was supposed to. I mean... After all, what was the flood about? The judgment of mankind doing all kinds of things in opposition to God's plan. But um, I don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us that specifically. So we'll just leave it at that, a little bit of speculation. But uh, these verses now, as they are clear in their instruction that we may eat of the animal kingdom, make it impossible for us to demand a vegetarian diet or vegan approach to life. Maintaining a vegetarian diet is not wrong, but what is wrong is to demand that others do that or follow that practice as well. So I ask you in the notes, uh, pun intended here, to spend some time digesting Romans 14. Okay, In Romans 14, it talks about 
Some eat and some don't. Some celebrate a certain day as more important than others. Others don't. They count every day alike. Each one has to be fully convinced in his own mind. But an important, other important principle there in that passage is you cannot be laying out judgment and, and demands on God's servants. You're God's servant. They're God's servant. But you're not their boss. You know, like brothers and sisters would do when they're, I'm your boss. No, I'm your boss. No, <laughs> no God is your boss. And uh, he is the Lord. And he has instructed us to conduct ourselves in certain ways. And one of those ways is kind of in this limited realm, live and let live. You know, somebody wants to maintain a vegetarian approach to life, fine enough if they can do that. We know that the Jewish prophet Daniel asked for such a diet, didn't he, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's court so that he would not be ceremonially defiled. This diet was, for him, the safest way to maintain kosher and not have to worry about pork or other forbidden meat from entering into his mouth. Now, Daniel was a righteous man, as we know, very righteous, very godly man, so we can be sure that it was okay to maintain that sort of diet if one wishes to do so. Now, if we trust the Lord, we're not going to struggle here with uh, to understand that he must have had very good reasons for eating meat for his creatures, even though this did result in the death of animals, or it, I should say it this way, it does result in the death of animals, and with a massive population of humanity, it results in the death of massive numbers of animals all the time. This is part of our stewardship responsibility. We decide what is the right Proportion of diet to be meat, what, uh, how to raise the animals, how best to process them and harvest them, and, and all of that. Um, why would God have done this? Why would he have changed this dietary situation? Well, some simple research yields information that meat is much more calorically dense than vegetables because the calories come from protein and fat. Uh, it seems reasonable to suspect, to my mind anyway, that the post-flood world was much more harsh and required a lot more energy than the pre-flood world did in order to survive and to thrive in that more harsh environment. So this would necessitate people to consume more calories to be able to meet the demands of the new world, as we might call it. So that makes some sense. Uh, and perhaps... The Lord knew that with a burgeoning population, with a greatly increasing population, that uh, more food sources would be necessary than just plant life. And that uh, certainly has worked out quite well over the millennia, hasn't it? Now, the Lord's statement about the animals also confirms the dominion mandate that man has the ultimate power over animals. To raise animals to the level of humans is unbiblical. No matter how smart the animals may seem, that is unbiblical. Certainly, you have heard of cases where people are imprisoned for cruel treatment of animals, and certainly in some cases that is fitting, yet we see the killing of babies all around us with absolutely no repercussions at all, and it makes us wonder about the consistency. Of course, people don't really care about consistency, they just care about what they want to do, and so they'll do what they want to do. Now, pay, pay attention to this. If you're, you know, 
kind of objecting to one aspect of what I'm saying about, you know, saying, well, you're for the mistreatment of animals. No. There is no true Christian who is favorable to the mistreatment of animals. The righteous regard the life of their beast. They take care of them. They treat them, you know, as we say, humanely, although I don't like the term because we're not, they're not humans, okay? But you, we understand what that means, okay? But killing an animal for food is not a sin. Letting somebody starve by not killing animals for food, that is a sin. That is definitely a sin. Uh, paradoxically, I find it interesting, one way to ensure the flourishing of any species of animal is to allow that animal to be farmed. You know, if, if uh, the animals are just a public resource, nobody owns them, nobody cares for them. But a farmer who owns his animals, he knows how many he has, he keeps care of them, he treats them well, you know, obviously then sends them off to be harvested or processed for food production, but he makes sure that he doesn't send them all off because he wants them to reproduce and make more for the next season. So it's a paradoxical thing. If you want to save the rhinoceros, you let the rhinoceros be farmed by farmers and you watch its population will grow like crazy because it will be what? Stewarded by mankind. Okay? It's just exactly like your backyard or your garden. If you just sit there and do nothing, what happens to it? It goes wild. But if you, if you, you know, work with it, plant and till and pull the weeds, you, know, you can make it a very beautiful place. It can flourish. The same with the animals. You sit there and you just sit by and well, let the poachers do what they're going to do and, and let you know, nature take its course and the, the, the lions eat up the animals and, and the diseases run rampant and all that. You can do much better by applying your brain and your own self-interest to, to help that animal population. So it is somewhat paradoxical, but farmers ensure the species survives and multiplies by the way, what is a farmer other than a steward of some earthly resource? He's, the farmer is taking seriously the command of God to be a steward and have dominion over the earth. We're kind of removed from that a little bit because, you know, the most stewardship over the earth we know is going to the grocery store, some of us. That's not much, but uh, others of us understand that. So the farmers ensure the species will survive, and, and even if it makes a, a profit for them, and they can get larger and larger numbers of animals to harvest for food and, and, and so on. So taking seriously the dominion mandate helps the species do better as a species than it would in raw nature generally. Okay, that's a, a principle that we need to be able to process. The authority over the animals, however, does not extend to one area. In verse 4, it says, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, in it. The blood is to be poured out. There's something, there's something that just doesn't sit right to those of us who read our Bibles um, of, say, military exercises where they uh, you know, train survival by, in one part, drinking the blood of an animal that you kill. That's kind of disgusting. It may have some survival feature to it. I don't know all of the ins and outs of that. But the Bible is very clear from Genesis 9 
Even you read in Acts uh, 16 or Acts 15, and you read other places that uh, the, the life is the life is in the blood. The life is to be poured out, and then the meat is to be uh, eaten. So the law of Moses prescribed the same thing in Leviticus 17, uh, Deuteronomy 12. You can see John uh, chapter 6 as well on that. I'll let you look those portions up. In fact. I'll let you look them up all except the John one. I want to read the John one again because I want to review what it says. John chapter 6 and uh, 53. What does it say here? Oh, yeah. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. In you, you've all read that, and you probably wonder what in the world. One of our dear sisters got all turned around about that. You remember Laura, who, who, what does that mean? And is that you know the transubstantiation? And is that what we do at the communion and all that? Now the passage makes it very clear that eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man means believing in Him, and the fact that He gave His body and poured out His blood for us in. Uh, for our sins. That's what that passage means. It's excessively clear if you read the whole chapter, the whole last part of the chapter, to be able to understand that. All right, we move off of uh, dietary uh, instruction to now capital punishment, and we'll spend a few minutes here. Earlier this week, a jury uh, decided that the Parkland school shooter Nicholas Cruz would get the sentence of life in prison without the opportunity of parole, instead of the death sentence. He killed 17 people, mostly young people, and injured, I believe, 14 others. I may be wrong on that number, but Florida law required the jury to come to a unanimous decision if they were to carry out the death penalty. And several jurors, perhaps one in particular at the beginning, but several jurors would not accept the death penalty. So the lesser penalty is his portion. The victimized families and many in the nation are deeply troubled that justice has not been served and even some expressing that in a vengeful way. Their loved ones are gone, but the murderer remains. He will be housed, fed, have medical treatment, and other benefits for the rest of his life. Incarceration, although not uh, something that uh, any of us should look forward to, is a mercy to this man. Let me remind you that Sometimes God exercised mercy toward people. Uh, He didn't exercise the death penalty on the Apostle Paul. He didn't on King David and numerous others in the Scriptures. Of course, some people get away with it. They're not found out. Many murders today are not ever solved. But remember this as you think about this case. Although... The scriptures here will be very clear on what the outcome should be. It's merciful that this man has more time to think about his soul and perhaps come to faith in Christ because if he doesn't, the moment he dies, he will face a far worse punishment. 
than either incarceration for life or the physical death penalty. Now, most humans, I feel, know in their hearts that the death penalty is sometimes the only appropriate recourse in a case of criminality, of such criminality. In this case, many expressed, look, if this is not a death penalty case, what would qualify as such a case? And the reason in this particular situation was that there are some that had qualms because of this young man's background, which undoubtedly was troubled. Um, but that, to, to uh, you know, our way of thinking, does not at, at all, um, what can I say, make him unaccountable for the actions that he willingly did. They know that if the death penalty does not apply in a case like this one, it's hard to imagine where it would apply. Uh, you know, killing 17, injuring 14 others, terrorizing countless others. Uh, how much more than that do you need before the death penalty becomes viable? The Bible's clear in Genesis 9, 5, and 6 about a couple, couple of points. We read it already, so let me just highlight the points. First of all, murder is punishable by death. God has allowed the human race in its governmental corporate capacity to carry out the death penalty upon people who are murderers. Okay? There's no other appropriate punishment that has equal value to the crime than that. This applies whether the murderer is a man or an animal. Second, the reason for this harsh punishment is given in the text. God has made man in his image. And so each of us has extremely high intrinsic value. Intrinsic value. God has made, well, he made Adam and Eve directly, but he, he did such a work in Adam and Eve and controls things in such a minute way that we can say, even though it's many generations since the direct creation of Adam and Eve, we can say because of that genetic connection and God's providential arrangement of all things that God made you. He made you. Before he formed you, what? He knew you. Before your members were put together, before the days were written for you, he knew you. Something special there about you you as an individual. Things can be replaced. Lives cannot. A person is, by design, creation and definition, one of a kind. You say, I'm a twin. Well, God knows you differently than he knows your twin. You are a unique person. You are a unique person. You are specially created by God. The prescribed punishment is the only one that fits the crime. The crime of murder is inherently wrong in God's sight. Okay, this is not a, a punishment set by society or a moral created by the majority. It's always murder is always wrong in all places at all times. Okay, now listen, we're not talking about killing. Otherwise, we could, uh, we could not have an executioner who would carry out the death penalty because he would be guilty of... He's not guilty of anything. He's carrying out the state's assigned punishment for the criminal that did the murder. Okay, Just war would be out if, if all killing were uh, out and so on. Uh, killing a home invader, uh, 
who is threatening your life does does not fit under this category, whatever. That's actually a a response of the corporate corporate humanity saying we're not going to allow home invaders, and we're going to deputize the person whose home is invaded to carry out the penalty if it's necessary. That's kind of a scary situation, of course. But in any case, murder is wrong. Is wrong. Uh, it's not that we decide. See, when we get to thinking, well, we can decide what to do about that. It's in our total power. And we just kind of ignore what God says, you know, plug our ears. Talk to the hand, God. Um, boy, what an attitude. What a, what a terrible, arrogant, proud attitude that is. If we would just obey God, things would go a whole lot better, wouldn't they? Now, there are good reasons for capital punishment besides obedience to God. That's the first one. Humble ourselves under His Lordship and say, yep, God, you said it, we'll carry it out. But first of all, in addition to that, it prevents the offender from repeating his crime and harming someone else. Secondly, it tends to be a deterrent when executed quickly. If not, then it loses its deterrent factor and the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. Some of our inner cities that where crime is running rampant, a guy gets away with murder one time, what's he going to do? He's going he's to be emboldened to do it again and again and again until he's caught and physically stopped from being able to do that crime again. That it's, it's, again, it's difficult to process, but that's just the way it is. Sometimes the only way is to physically restrain wicked people so they cannot do what they wish to do in their hearts. Third, the death penalty gives proper closure with a sense of justice to the crime's victims. Many of them in the the Cruz case in Florida said, I heard several of them in the video say, justice was not served today. It was not served. I mean, for them... Their son or daughter, beloved as they were, is gone. Has been gone for, what, four years almost, or maybe a little more than four years. They're never getting them back. Those ones they loved and cared for and labored over and literally labored their mothers and all of that are gone, gone, gone. Where is the justice, they say? Because in them, and I think, I think, a lot of people would have a different opinion if it was their child that was lost than kind of sitting up in their liberal ivory tower and saying, oh, we shouldn't do that sort of thing. Well, you might have a different thought about it if it happened to you. You hear stories about people who don't want us to harvest deer until one comes through their windshield and sits in their front seat with them. Then they understand, finally, they understand the reality of life. And they say, oh, okay, that's why we harvest deer. Okay? Yeah, so sometimes people just need to have a little wider uh, kind of imagination of experience so they don't have to actually experience it so they can understand why things have to be the way that they are. Fourth, the death penalty gives due weight to the life that was taken away prematurely. I mean, you hear stories of people who, who murder someone and they're out of prison in 20 years or even less. Today it's getting worse and worse. What is a life worth? Nothing? 
troubling. Now, you might object that the criminal person has some deficiency, some problem in their upbringing, or some other mitigating factor, and like in this case in Florida, and that's something to think about for sure. But all that means is that the person may be more likely to kill again. There's one certain way to make sure they don't. The death penalty will ensure that they never can do that again. And by the way, I have to wonder because if you think, well, just send them to prison. What about all the other prisoners in the prison who are not due the death penalty? Do you want to really put somebody in there who's liable to kill them in with them? Is that just for them? Would you like to be the roomie of this guy? You know, you're on the top bunk, he's on the lower bunk. What happens when you're sleeping some night in that? Oh, it's terrible to even think about. That's another reason. Anyway, happily, however, God does not implement the death penalty on all humans for their sin. The wages of sin, sin is a capital offense, my friends. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And if you don't respond to Christ's offer of free grace by believing into Him, by turning away from your sin and trusting in Christ, then you will not only experience physical death, the Bible says in Revelation you will experience the second death, death twice over. The spiritual death is what that's talking about, permanently affixed for all future eternity. God did, though, implement the death penalty on one special person, one very special person. So he could stand in as a substitute for you and for me. The Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily received, as I prayed earlier, that death penalty in which he lowered himself. He, think of the glory of God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, if I could say so, sitting in heaven for all eternity past, enjoying perfect fellowship, and the Son volunteers to take on human flesh, to take such limitation upon himself is so almost degrading, so humiliating, and yet he would do that so that he could raise up a multitude of those he would call brethren, sisters, to be with him, to share his glory in the heavenly places for all eternity. He died for you, my friends. He took capital punishment so you wouldn't have to be there in that place. What a mercy, what a grace that Christ Jesus did for us. I urge you, believe in Him. You must, you must repent. But not only did He die for us, God has appointed Him to be the judge of all the earth, and He's given us assurance of that by raising Him up from the dead. God has delegated judgment to the Son. The Son is a very uh, fitting one to be judged. Why? Because He's also been a man. He knows exactly where you're coming from. He knows all the uh, you know, frailties, all the temptations, all that stuff that you do as a human. That makes Him a perfect judge, just like it makes Him a perfect priest. Makes Him a perfect human king, too, by the way. 
Now, one application of, of what we talked about a little bit earlier about the animals is that if, a, if an animal like a pit bull kills a person, then it is only right to summarily dispatch, you know what I mean by that, right? That animal immediately, without questions asked. You have emotional connection to that animal? I don't care. You can't do it yourself, then you have somebody else come in who can do it. In the scriptures, in the Mosaic law, the owner, the owner of an animal was, was responsible. And if the animal was known to be dangerous to people and ended up killing someone, guess what happened to that owner of that animal? He was punished by the death penalty. Now that might shock somebody, but you know what? You know what that would do? If that guy knows that his ox tends to gore people, well, he's probably going to turn that ox into a sacrifice or into dinner because it is not worth it to have him out there roaming around goring people to death and then he has to suffer the death penalty. That is a sure way to make sure that animals are kept under control. The passage here also helps us think about capital punishment in the modern scene. Many liberals and progressives are horrified by the taking of life for murder. But in opposing capital punishment, they devalue the life that was taken away, downplay the suffering of the family from whom the life was taken, and they endanger the society. I mean, on three counts right there, I mean, it's like strike one, strike two, strike three. That view is out. That view is unworkable, as we see today. People running rampant, running around burning and killing and murdering and all of this. It's just a mess. Because people don't take seriously what God has commanded. It's always going to be the case. When you don't do things God's way, it's going to be a bad way. The, the, uh, the way of the transgressor, the, the proverb says, the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. You know, Why is life so hard? Why did God make life so hard? He didn't make life hard. He made life ideally, and then we blew it. It's our fault. Don't blame God. Oh, he made us with enough free will to get ourselves. He gave us enough rope to hang ourselves, and then we hung ourselves, and then we complain at God. Why do you do that? We didn't have to do that. All right, uh, verses 8 through 17, we'll talk about the rainbow covenant. 8 through 17 goes on, the, the text does this way. Then God spoke to Noah and said to his sons, uh, and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you, and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, notice that. It doesn't say never again there shall be a flood. We know there are many floods, but not one that will destroy the earth like this last one. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. 
Have you ever seen a rainbow from an airplane? Anybody? You know what it looks like? Yes, sir. It's a circle. You look down upon a circle. Yeah, we don't see it that way from our perspective. Uh, beautiful rainbow, wasn't there, over Buckingham Palace uh, just after the Queen's passing? Very interesting, I thought. This is a sign of a covenant that God made, a unilateral covenant. He made it unconditionally. He made it with Noah, with all of humanity and with every living creature, did not destroy them by means of a flood. Now, he didn't promise no floods locally. He didn't promise that the earth would never be destroyed. It will be by the means of a fire the next time. You can read about that in Second Peter chapter 3, but we won't go there today. The sign is the rainbow, and by it, God reminded himself, as it were, uh, kind of like uh, you know, writing on the back of your hand, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I'm speaking anthropomorphically now, okay? God doesn't need any aids to his memory like we do. I believe the rainbow probably existed before this point and was re-signified. Some have taught, well, this is a new thing. It never happened before, um, you know, maybe because of atmospheric conditions or something like that. But it doesn't really matter to the point of the passage to me, the reason I say that I, don't, I, that I do think it existed before is it just seems odd to me that the physics of light and the prism-like properties of water would change at this particular point in time to make rainbows possible. This is over 1,600 years after the creation began. So it's just here with God's promise, the rainbow is invested with new meaning. Now, this is likened to the symbol of baptism. You know that Christian baptism was not a... uh, Christian baptism was a new thing, but baptism was not a new thing. The Jewish people had rites of of, of ablution, rites of baptism. Other uh, cultures did or religions did as well. John's baptism came before Christian baptism. Uh, Jewish baptisms came before. But now this was invested with a totally new meaning and symbolism by Jesus Christ. Okay, let me see. How much more do I have to go? Boy, this guy writing these sermons. Who is this? Writing all these long sermons here. I think I'm going to have to uh, hang it up for the day. Uh, Starting in verse 18, we are going to focus more in on Noah and the prophecy about his children, uh, the genealogy, uh, and the sin uh, of uh, Noah and Ham, both of them two sins, and then the death of Noah. But I'm going to leave that for the next time so I don't overload you with uh, information. Hopefully this has been helpful and uh, you can share some of this and be ready to share with people that object to say, you know, meat in the diet, capital punishment, uh, and, and all of that sort of thing. I will note, though, as we close, that it's... Um, clear that God has given us certain responsibilities and, and, and promises in the chapter. God wants the human race to reproduce, but people want to do the opposite. They want to depopulate. They want to abort. They want to birth control their way out of that responsibility. The rainbow is still with us, but it's been invalidly appropriated by those who oppose God's morality. How about cultural appropriation? Let's stand up for the culture of Christianity, shall we? 
and say, you are not allowed to appropriate our symbols for your sin. Capital punishment is still permitted for those who are murderers by God, but mankind has become squishy and doesn't want to implement God's directives. Instead, lawlessness abounds and punishment is not swift nor certain. We can still eat meat, but some of us eat too much, and others of us demand that you don't eat it at all. We always find a way to mess things up, don't we? Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to ask, would you take these words and help us to understand them, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our God and our Lord uh, through them, take these instructions seriously, and be able to share with others. Uh, There are reasons, good, good reasons, why we do the things that we do. Uh, We're not just, you know, randomly believing just because, you know, we heard it in some tradition or some pastor told us or whatever. We have very sound and logical reasons for these things. And, of course, not the least of which is because you've created us, we are your creatures and are responsible to you to be obedient. Thank you for instructing us this morning in Christ's name. Amen.